Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the ripple effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Support for LAist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Andy Klein, reviewer for AV Club, Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Cinegods.com, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the horror comedy Renfield, starring Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Cage plays Dracula. The film's directed by Chris McKay. Ryan Ridley's the screenwriter. Andy, what'd you think of Renfield? I thought this was fun. I think it's minor work, but it but it's perfectly entertaining. Uh, Nicholas Holt plays Renfield, and he's not the usual Renfield who's like a half-crazed you know, freaking out guy. He's he's a handsome young man with good manners and a British accent. Uh, but he is enslaved by Dracula and he does eat flies and bugs, which gives him his super strength when he's engaged in trying to kill people to, to bring to Dracula to drink their blood, which is his main function. But he feels really bad about his work. It's really getting to him and... What makes the film really funny is he ends up in a, a codependency therapy group trying to explain his his horrible, abusive relationship with his employer. <laughs> but he can't, obviously, explain it entirely. Uh, at the same time, there's a, an honest cop played by Aquafina who is trying to bust this uh, the horrible Lobo gang uh, and it turns out that the Lobo gang basically has everybody else on the police force on their payroll. So she's she and Renfield bond, and it's really quite cute. It's it seems like it's pushing towards romance, though it never mm. is explicitly done that way. Uh, Nicholas Cage, of course, played a semi vampire in Vampire's Kiss in 1989, mm. which I still think is his greatest performance. And is, you know, in my top 10 of the 80s. I mean, I think that's a great, great film. Here he's playing way further over the top even than there, which is sort of what you want for this film. Uh, it is frequently funny, mostly because of the sort of new agey therapy stuff bumping up against traditional Dracula lore. Uh, and uh, I, I thought this was... Uh, you know, a perfectly entertaining, not great, but, but, you know, worth the money. <laughs> Renfield, what'd you think, Tim? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that guy, that guy in Vampire's Kiss. The guy in Vampire's Kiss thought he was a vampire, but wasn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this guy, Nick is, Nick is having a hoot in this movie. He's doing, he's doing Bella Lugosi, uh, doing Renfield. It's just a whole mm. thing that he's having a whole lot of fun in this movie. But the movie's not really about him so much as it is about Renfield and Aquafina sort of roaming around through this, uh, through this story in, in New Orleans. Uh, it is fun. It's a gore fest. This is a flat-out gore fest. That's why our rating for something you might think otherwise wouldn't have. You're just gonna yeah, it it cranks it up. Universal, Universal putting out this film in a perfectly appropriate, appropriate studio. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd be putting out a film uh, relevant to Dracula. They are the horror film studios. And Dracula is a classic, a truly great film. Go to the movie, have some fun. It's a gore fest, folks. I mean, heads really roll. (laughs) Yeah. And organs. Uh, and, and arms. Also, yeah. <laughs> Everything else. Renfield, uh, directed by Chris McKay, starring Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage, with Aquafina as well, rated R in wide release. Sweetwater, a biographical drama, tells the story of NBA Hall of Famer Nat Sweetwater Clifton, the first African-American to sign an NBA contract. Everett Osborne stars. The film is written and directed by Martin Gigi 
And Tim, what do you think of Sweetwater? Well, this is a perfectly affable uh, telling of the integration of, of, of the NBA, of the, uh, of the integration of, uh, of the National Basketball Association uh, through um, uh, the life of, of this particular person, Nat Sweetwater um, Clifton, whose name was actually Clifton um, uh, uh, Nathaniel. And that's a whole, the whole complicated story about why he changed his name when he was sent from Arkansas to Chicago by his mother when he was a very little boy uh, and, and had a great skill for basketball, these gigantic hands uh, he had. I, I, re, I, re, I remember him just a wee little bit from clips and things like that. This film starts in 1990. Old cab driver uh, pulls up a sports rider, gets in the back of the cab. They start talking about Michael Jordan, that new kid, Michael Jordan. And this old cab says, well, let me tell you a story the way old black cabbies do. <laughs> and he starts telling the story. We fade back and he tells the story of, of, of the NBA and Sweetwater and all of that. It's a very interesting, very traditional, very well done, but ordinary story. What I do like about it is they go into the back rooms of the NBA, all these old names that we remember, Ned Irish and all these guys, you know, uh, who own these NBA teams, and we sit with them as they hash out what they're going to do. Uh, are we going to... First, they were considering allowing the Harlem Globetrotters, the whole team, into the NBA. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I'd Abe heard that and, and forgotten. That. Yeah, right. That was the thing that they considered but, at but first. But to play for real, for, not not comedy. Yeah, not comedy. Play for real. But what they quickly realized, we'll just all lose. <laughs> None of us can beat them. Uh, and then they decided, well, maybe what we'll do is each of us will take one black player. Uh, onto our teams. It's, 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 it's an interesting conversation. I don't know how much of it is accurate, but it did make me want to go and look these things up and think about them. Look, the first um, uh, NBA player of color was Asian. His name was Wat uh, Smato, I think is his last name. He was Asian, 1946-1947, of color. And then it's really kind of complicated about who was the actual first African-American because you have the folks who signed the contract first and then the people who actually played first and, and there, there were people who were drafted but they never did play in the NBA. So it's kind of complicated. If you go out and look, you will get various different names of people who were the first African-American to play in the NBA, which is why it's not as well-known a story. Say the Jackie Robinson yeah, story, right. which we know. It's because it gets murky and complicated. This is fine. I remember Sweetwater. He was a great guy. I, I grew up reading all these NBA autobiographies and biographical stories about the history of the Harlem Globetrotters and all the, all the you know, uh, tournaments in, in New York City and everything. They're such a huge part of the evolution of the league. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Sweetwater. Uh, so Hall of Famer Nat Sweetwater Clifton at the center of the story. Is, it uh, stars Everett Osborne, Martin Gigi, the writer and director. It's rated PG-13 in wide release. Uh, the Japanese animated film Suzume uh, is written and directed by Makoto Shinkai. Charles, what do you think of Suzume? Um, loved it. This was the number three film in Japan last year, and it just cements uh, Shinkai's reputation as one of the most interesting directors working in animation, period. Uh, he's part of that new generation that includes Hosoda and Yuasa and Kamiyama and some others who are making films that are strong, imaginative, personal, and are about something. Uh, in this particular case, he returns to the subject um, underlying theme of his first really major film, Your Name, which is the trauma that Japanese people are continuing to suffer from what we refer to as Fukushima, and they call the Great East Japan Disaster, the uh, earthquake and tidal wave and nuclear meltdown. And Suzume the heroine was orphaned by that. She's been raised by her aunt who moved her to the southern island of Shikoku. And one day on her way to school, she meets this rather dashing grad student who's asking her about local ruins. And she discovers that he is a closer his function is to shut doors in ruined, abandoned cities that allow these pernicious monsters to cross into our world and cause often devastating earthquakes. And Shinkai said he was inspired by this when he was traveling through Japan talking about uh, your name, that so much of the countryside in Japan has been deserted and is crumbling. And he thought that there are ceremonies for the opening and the, the groundbreaking of buildings, but nothing for the closing. And no one thinks about the lives of the people who once lived there. 
Uh, it turns into a road trip adventure romance. Uh, it's exciting. And Suzume, unlike the kind of fantasy butt-kicking heroines we seem to produce endlessly in America, is a layered, complex individual. She has strengths. She has fears. She has concerns. But that makes her all the more human. And when she copes with the crises that evolve, she only does what an intelligent, resourceful high school girl would do and could do. She doesn't need superpowers. She has resolve. She has initiative. Uh, I love the film. And uh, again, I'm, I'm going to watch it again tonight. I want to watch it in Japanese and see what, what nuances I can pick up that I may have missed uh, in the dub. The film is Susume Andy. Uh, yeah, I liked it very much. I'm not quite as enthusiastic as Charles, uh, largely because the film's rhythm, about an hour and 20 minutes in, I thought, okay, this is the climactic scene, and then there's a whole other half-hour act, and it was necessary to resolve the plot, but I did feel like it could be shorter. Charles did not bother to mention a wonderful thing about this film, which is that the male lead character, the dashing closer, spends most of the film as a three-legged small children's chair <laughs> that he gets trapped into by uh, one of his, well, a sort of demon character. Uh, but no, it's totally uh, engaging. And yes, everything Charles said about the richness of her character, I totally sign on to. We're talking about the Japanese animated adventure film Suzume from writer-director Makoto Shinkai. It's unrated in Japanese with English subtitles, and it's in wide release. The comedic documentary Chop and Steel uh, features Joe Pickett, Nick Pruer, and Scott Bass. Uh, the film is directed by Bernd Mater and Ben Steinbauer. Uh, what did you think, Tim, of Chop and Steel? Very interesting about these two guys, these two sort of ordinary guys, goofy kids who were childhood friends, late 70s, early 80s, uh, who found a kinship in doing silly pranks, the kind of things that people might think about when you think about the stuff that the jackass guys do. Uh, or or pulling off the kind of stunts that maybe Borat does, you know, later. Yes, who yes show men. Up here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember the Dookie Boys used to make those prank phone calls? Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that kind of stuff. This is the kind of stuff these knucklehead boys uh, grew up doing. Um, and we meet their parents, uh, and they, they they explain, yep, nope, they've always been this way. One of them, Joe Pickett, took his high school picture, and he's sitting there looking all serious with this trombone. Doesn't play the trombone, <laughs> uh, and things yeah, like that. Yeah. These are the kind of things yeah. that these kids these kids do. One one of the things uh, that they that they did that became very popular, particularly among the Alamo Drafthouse chain, is what do they call it? The found footage found footage festival festival. Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing that they found was a VHS tape of a McDonald's training video. Right, McDonald's training video. This kid walking around doing how to clean up McDonald's, looking for the McSee, looking for the McSee, and it, whatever it, that. <laughs> Whatever that is. And it's insane. So they started going around just collecting these things, training videos, off, this weird thing, and they have this festival where they play these VHS tapes and just clip the good bits out. And it's hysterically funny and wonderful and really terrible and really bad. <laughs> One thing that these guys would do, they would get themselves booked on local news stations all over the country as sort of fake whatever. Uh, fake scientists, oh, fake no. uh, fake yo-yo experts. Fake, you know, and, and they would do it in plainly deep. No one would call to check to see if yep. these guys were anything. It's just nuts. And, and if their big, the thing that got them sort of famous was they did a fake strongman act. And both of these guys are not strongmen. Chop I mean, these and guys are, are in bad shape. And a major media company sued them for fraud because one of their stations was conned by this. And that caused a sort of cause celeb that made these guys way more famous and got them a lot of support from a lot of comedians and people like the Yes Men. Uh, they really are funny guys, and it's amazing uh, that they have managed to make a living out of this. They were doing like 130 found footage festivals a year wow. going from town to town. And, uh, you know, it's clear that nobody's making a lot of money here. Yeah. Uh, but but they are very engaging, and they do the kind of pranks that are really supposed to uh, really a comment on 
how shallow lots of news shows is that nobody ever checked any of their credentials when they would pitch this stuff. Wow. Uh, Chop and Steel, comedic documentary. Joe Pickett, Nick Pruer, Scott Bass at the center of the film. Bernd Mader and Ben Steinbauer are the directors. Chop and Steel is unrated. You can see it at Alamo Drafthouse in downtown Los Angeles. We have many more films that are coming up with our critics. Uh, Charles, Andy, and Tim will be back right here. In case you joined us late, by the way, you can catch up. Just listen to the full hour of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAist.com. We'll be back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theatre Company at the Los Angeles Theatre Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle with Andy Klein, Charles Solomon, and Tim Cogshell. Next up, a documentary, A Life on the Farm. Uh, and speaking of found footage movies, Andy, this has a similar theme. Yes, this is in fact co-produced by the guys from Chop and Steel. Oh, okay. <laughs> and just it's another Alamo Drafthouse film, and it's playing at the same theater. Uh uh, this is a classic case of found footage that apparently gained a lot of fans on the internet when somebody posted it on YouTube. Uh, Life on the Farm, uh, an aging farmer in northern England who, as his family was dying off, becomes obsessed with filming everything. And he's uh, totally eccentric. He, he wheels his dead wife around the farm for three days in her wheelchair so she can say goodbye to the animals. Uh, he does all kinds of strange stuff, and a lot of it is very entertaining, and the film is a documentary sort of looking at that film and the found footage and to what degree you can say this guy was doing art and to what degree it was just craziness on his part, and there's a lot of discussion of that. Uh, I found it really interesting, and he was a character. Oscar Harding is the director of A Life on the Farm. It's unrated, and it's at Alamo Drafthouse, downtown L.A. Uh, the Ukrainian action-adventure comedy Once Upon a Time in Ukraine is written and directed by Roman Perfliev. Uh Tim, what do you think of it? I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It opens with this gigantic samurai battle, ninjas and samurais. And I'm thinking, is this the right movie? <laughs> ninjas and samurai. No, it's, it's, it's happening in Ukraine. This is the right movie. And and we have this samurai battle with this one samurai who's Ukrainian. I'm like, well, where did this guy come from? Look, there's at least one historical figure in this movie, um, uh, the second lead, uh, whose whose name is Taras Shavinko. He's this very very uh, important a famous poet and ethnographer uh, from, from Ukraine, 1850s, 1860s, is when this all takes place. This, this film imagines this very important poet and lover of words taking up the samurai sword and going after all of these bad, bad men uh, who took his girlfriend and killing them. Think about it like this. What if Walt Whitman had got really, really pissy one day and, and became a samurai. It's, that's what's going on in this movie. And Ukrainian samurais and ninjas and man. I, Andy? Uh, yeah, I loved this film. I, I was totally charmed by it. Uh, it's got great sword battle scenes, uh, lots of ninjas versus, versus samurai, uh, a lot of humor, uh, 
great characters. I mean, I, I just thought this totally delivered. It's one of two martial arts films this week, and the one that's genuinely Chinese isn't nearly as good as this. We'll get to that. Well, when you mentioned Walt Whitman, and it's like <laughs> leaves of kicking grass. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I uh, Once Upon a Time in Ukraine is the uh, film. It's unrated in Ukrainian with English subtitles, and you can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater. Rare Objects stars Katie Holmes, who also directed the film and co-wrote the film as well. Uh, please tell us, Andy, about Rare Objects. Uh, this is a, about a young Puerto Rican woman in New York, mm -hmm. I believe, and she uh, is raped one night and is totally traumatized and ends up uh, in in a mental hospital where she makes friends. When she gets out of the hospital, she quits college. She goes back to live with her mother, but she never tells anybody about the rape. She keeps it to herself. Uh, she becomes really deep friends with the woman she meets in the mental hospital. And uh, she gets a job working for Alan Cumming, who's playing an art art salesman, a, a <laughs> curios, what do you call it? A furniture, you know, a collectible. Yeah. Uh, really expensive stuff. It's very sensitively done. Um, the lead car uh, lead actress, My uh, Mayorga? Julia Mayorga. Yeah. yeah, Julia Mayorga is excellent. Katie Holmes, as her friend from the mental hospital, gives the best performance I've ever seen Katie Holmes give. And I felt like she really had a sure hand in directing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I found this quite moving and and uh, altogether. Yeah, yeah, an adorned performance by Katie. I mean, she's there. She's rough, hewn in in, in this film. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emotion in this film. A lot of feelings, and a few too many of them get spoken for me. Yeah. Um, uh, so so some of that stuff uh, I, I think should have been played in, in differently. Uh, it would have been a little bit shorter, a little bit tighter film, but it's a deeply moving film, and I liked it a lot. The movie we're talking about is Rare Objects. It's based on a novel a few years ago by Kathleen Tesoro. It was adapted by Katie Holmes and Faden Papadopoulos. Uh, the film starring Julia Mayorga and Katie Holmes, directed by Holmes. It's rated R. Rare Objects is at the Lemley NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Imagining the Indian, a documentary about Native Americans. Uh, the film is directed by Aviva Kempner and Ben West. Charles? Well, this film deals with some very important issues, primarily the use of Native Americans as tribal, ma as I'm sorry, professional and school mascots. Uh, for sports teams, its weakness is that it also tries to deal with a number of other issues about other misrepresentations and stereotyping of Native American peoples, and it kind of loses its focus. And you're really getting interested in one idea or one set of problems, and then you're yanked over to another one and then back to the first. Uh, I was appalled to learn that there are hundreds of high schools and middle schools in the country that still have Native American mascots for their teams. And I think if they had just kept its focus on that or one of the other aspects that they're, of, of the problems that they're trying to tell us, it would have been a stronger film. But there's plenty to be interested in and plenty to be upset about in the, uh, in the film. We're talking about the documentary Imagining the Indian, It's Unrated, directed by Aviva Kempner and Ben West, uh, who is Cheyenne, I understand, and it's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Mafia Mama is an action uh, crime comedy starring Tony Collette, Monica Bellucci, and Sophia Nomvedi. Uh, the film's directed by Catherine Hardwick. A Mafia Mama, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds uh, like Roger Corman in the 70s, doesn't yeah. it? And yeah. I tell you what it really reminded me of, though. Pritzi's on it. John Houston, yeah, that that, 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 that kind of about eighty five or so. Uh, is it that yeah. good? Nicholson, it's it's, it's really oh, it's not that good, not but, that it, good. but it's silly in that same way uh, as a young Alec Baldwin and Michelle Pfeiffer in that film. So this is super duper silly and fun. Um, we we have Tony Collette, who's just the ordinary woman living here. Her grandfather, who she'd completely forgotten about, dies in Italy. Uh, he's a mob boss, big huge mafia empire. She doesn't really know what's going on. They invite her back. She thinks she's just going. You're going to have a eat, love, pray sort of situation. But they need 
here to take over the mob family. And she has her consigliere and all these guys, and <laughs> people are getting killed. Her. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's ridiculously silly. She's coming along, but she comes along. By the time we get to the end of this movie, yeah, yeah. She, she's I, a mafia mama. Yeah. I th- I thought it was moderately amusing. I didn't think it was all that funny, but Tony Collette is wonderful as always, uh, and uh, it it is clever. I just wish it were a little funnier than it was. Uh, Mafia Mama is the film. It's rated R, uh, and it's in wide release. The film written by J. Michael Feldman and Debbie June. Sakura uh, is a Chinese action adventure starring Donnie Yen, the film directed by Yen and Kai Wai Kam. Andy, what'd you think of Sakura? I was so disappointed by this. Donnie Yen has pretty much taken over the mantle of Jet Li. And uh, this film, you know, I love Chinese martial arts films. And this one pales in comparison to the Ukrainian martial arts film. (laughs) Uh, It's a very complex plot that's hard to follow. uh, And there is not a light moment in it. And the fight scenes, while some of them are good, lots of nice wire work. There's also some really substandard CGI for some of them that I found very distracting. Uh, it's two hours and it really should have been much shorter and should have had something other than speeches about honor and, and all that. Sakra, what do you think, Tim? Well, let's see. Um, uh, fight scene. Uh, uh, somebody, somebody gets killed. They hold them in their arms, and they, and I, I declare that I shall avenge you. That's what happens in this movie, like literally, like fourteen times in, yeah. in this movie. What this movie needs to be is in English and out of sync. Uh, then, <laughs> then we, we would have had ourselves in a, the grand old tradition. That's what I'm talking about. That's all it needs to be. But it's okay. Sakura is rated R. It's in Mandarin, Cantonese, and Chinese with English subtitles. Directed by Donnie Yen, or co-directed, I should say, and starring Donnie Yen. It's in select theaters. Rated R. The French animated fantasy film Blind Willow Sleeping Woman is d- written and directed by Pierre. Foldes, what did you think, Charles, of Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman? Well, there is a quality to a lot of Murakami's magical realism that I think could be animated very effectively, uh, particularly some of his early work, like A Wild Sheep Chase, uh, which is still my favorite of his books. I don't think this works for two reasons. The first is uh, Foldes tries to tie together several different stories from the collections Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman, and After the Quake, and to turn very different characters into one character at different times in his life. And it doesn't work. The, 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 the characters, as they're conceived, particularly if you know the stories, are too different. The second is we need a new term to describe films where everything is done from live action because they're not really animation. They're not creating the performance in the way an animated film always has. So I'm afraid this did uh, very little for me, and I've read everything Murakami's written that's been translated. Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman, Tim. Different stories going on here, but there's this very specific story uh, going on that has to do with this older gentleman and this giant green frog called Frog, uh, because he keeps calling him Mr. Frog, and he always says, no, it's just Frog. And there's a thing that has to happen that involves this worm that's uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of feet below the ground that's causing these earthquakes in Japan. They have to go underground and do battle with this worm. It's a very odd story. It's a very odd story. But the conversations that this man has with this frog that nobody can see but him are absolutely fascinating. Uh, and, And for whatever reason, I hung my hat on that. And the rest of it just sort of floated by. Blind Willow Sleeping Woman is unrated, and it's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. in French with English subtitles. The music documentary Personality Crisis, One Night Only, uh, is directed by Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi. Tim, what did you think of the music doc? Very, very interesting. Mostly this is David Johansson uh, in concert doing complete songs um, in in Manhattan. It's funny because he says, uh, actually, who you have here tonight is Buster Poindexter uh, performing as David Johansson. (laughs) (laughs) I remember in the 80s he had that old Buster Poindexter thing thing. going on. And and Martin is is covering all of that, and uh, this is a continuation of what what he's been doing for quite a while now in uh, these sort of 
American songwriters and, and things like that, while showing us footage from 50 years ago of David, the dolls, uh, and all of the people around them, of course, because you had Andy Warhol, you had you know, all these people. So just by looking at this history, you just get this deep richness of American culture. I got to tell you, I forgot that David Johansson was ridiculously beautiful. He was David Bowie pretty when he was a really, 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 really young man. And he sort of launched all of that when he was, you know, when he was a really, he was just a gorgeous, gorgeous guy. And they did all of that sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of drag and transgender stuff. And today, you know, in, in the conditions that we are in today, politically, I wonder, I wonder if David Johansson, if the Dolls, if David Bowie, if all of those folks who were doing what they were doing, straight through Culture Club at least, boy, George, I wonder how they would have been treated, how they would be treated now coming into the culture. The film is Personality Crisis One Night Only from Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi focusing on David Johansson. It's rated TVMA and it's available on Showtime. And Chocolat has a 4K restoration of, of the film uh, directed by Claire Denis, who co-wrote the film as well. This was uh, Claire Denis' directorial debut. Uh, Tim, take us back to Chocolat. Yeah, uh, it, and this is a beautiful 4K restoration. Restoration, uh, particularly so because the film is set in West Africa, set in Cameroon. Uh, and this film sort of moves through the countryside uh, very, very methodically and slowly. We hear everything that happens. Uh, so Claire was very aware of all of this at the time. Uh, this film gives us a very young Isaac uh, DiBencoli, uh, a very, very young uh, Julia Bishoshi. Uh, and they're just beautiful in this film. Uh, I love this movie because it's about the, the tension between this young black porter uh, and this young white woman and their family uh, in this place where there can be no sexual tension, where this cannot, this cannot possibly be. It's a beautiful, beautiful film, and it looks fabulous in 4K. We're talking about the movie Chocolat, which is uh, out in a 4K restoration from writer-director Claire Denis. Uh, it's rated PG-13 and at the Landmark Theater in Westwood. All right, for our Film Week critics, I'm Larry Mantle coming up. John Horn is with us, and John has a very special interview coming up. You'll hear all about how to blow up a pipeline in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is the name of a provocative nonfiction book written by Andreas Malm a couple of years ago. In the book, Malm argues that nonviolence hasn't worked to reverse climate change and that if the world is going to be saved, activists need to turn to sabotage and other illegal acts before it's too late. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is also the name of a new fictional film inspired by the book. It tells the story of a disparate group of eco-terrorists who join forces to blow up a pipeline. The movie was made by director and co-writer Daniel Goldhaber and actor and co-writer Ariella Barrera. They spoke with our John Horn about the book and their movie. I'm going to start by uh, sharing something uh, this is by the book of the same name by Andreas Malm. The reader is Brian Ahrens. So let's hear a clip from the book itself. So here is what this movement of millions should do for a start. Announce and enforce the prohibition. Damage and destroy new CO2-emitting devices. Put them out of commission. Pick them apart. Demolish them. Burn them. Blow them up. Let the capitalists who keep on investing in the fire 
know that their properties will be trashed. That, in a nutshell, I think, gets at what the book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is about. And it's an interesting chronicle of the history of nonviolence versus civil unrest and really makes the case that were it not for a more aggressive action, change would not have happened. Let's talk about when you first encountered the book and what that encounter with the book, how that translated into what we're talking about today. Yeah, I first uh, read the book. It was recommended to me and Ariella by Jordan Scholl, uh, our our co-writer and the one of the executive producers on the movie. And he is somebody I've been working with my whole professional life. And during that time, he's always kind of been a, looking at the kind of current state of everything in Hollywood being an IP adaptation and saying, why not adapt a work of academic theory? Why not adapt? You know, there's there's this wide library of ideas. Why not look there? And so that had just been an idea that had been kind of planted in Ariella and my's heads. And we um, were reading the book. And I think the ideas of the book and the title itself just suggests a heist film. And so I think it was an immediate moment of inspiration of trying to tell a story and a fictional story that literally delivers on the promise of the title and and that also could introduce these ideas uh, and these questions about whether or not sabotage and property destruction may be necessary to fight climate change and whether or not the destruction of fossil fuel infrastructure is an act of self-defense to a wide audience. So the nonfiction version of this book is an inconvenient truth part three, probably, the fictional version can do things that are different. So, Ariella, I'm going to ask you about the adaptation. What were the guiding principles in fictionalizing what is a nonfiction tome about action and about change of tactics? Initially, when we just kind of were uh, developing the movie, our, our first couple ideas were kind of twofold. First of all, we were discussing the politics of it, of course, and narratively, just kind of the hook for us was what if it was us and our friends who went and did this? What would that look like? What would the circumstances have to be for us or people we know to get to this point? And we found in just asking around and having conversations with people that we had never you know, thought to have that all of these stories that exist in the movie existed within one degree of separation in our own lives. And we were kind of able to flesh out these characters just from the conversations we were having with people and our and our different opinions on an act like this became pretty interesting, compelling narrative tension as well. So I think one of the points of the book itself is that there are so many people who assume revolution won't work when, in fact, history shows that it does work. Uh, I want to play a scene from the movie. This is set in a bookstore where two of your characters encounter each other and one of them has a book in his hands. It's got some good shit. Doesn't teach you how to do it, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's for school? Something? Nah, I just want to learn. Might be headed to Texas for the winter. What's in Texas? This project. Might be looking for some collaborators. What kind of project? What kind of project? Well... The book is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and as your character says, it doesn't tell you how to do it. In your film, you have characters who are trying to figure out, and let's just say they have some ideas of how to do it. How did you go about researching that without getting into trouble with the Bureau of Alcohol? I think it's now the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Bombs, I think, or Explosives. Um to not have Google searches that were going to get you in some sort of terrorist watch list? We worked uh, with a, a handful of consultants, uh, one of whom is a contractor who um, actually works in uh, counterterrorism, um, who basically is a giant bomb nerd and is one of those guys, you know, his whole day is about building bombs and uh, building homemade explosives and really um, does not love that uh, movies never get those details right. And I think saw this as his opportunity to help walk us through, uh, you know, the way that it would actually realistically be done. Um, but we also consulted with a pipeline expert, you know, to try to figure out how 
our characters might destroy uh, an active liquid petroleum pipeline without causing a massive ecological incident. Um, you know, we we also consulted with activists to talk about how the group might organize themselves. I think that it was really important that we got all of these details right, not just for the sake of the reality of the film, but because part of the provocation of the movie is the idea that doing uh, engaging in an act like this is not necessarily out of reach. It's, it's accessible, it's possible. And uh, I think that that was something really um, important for us to communicate. Not that long ago, I spoke with somebody in the movement, the real movement. But I'm going to quote this person because it was not an on-the-record quote. And what this person told me, I'm quoting them now, is what we've been doing all along is nothing more than advanced vandalism. We need to use military tactics because there's no time left and nothing else has worked. I'm curious, as you see yourselves as filmmakers, is there part of that revolutionary spirit in your sense of storytelling and your call as artists to tell a story like this? The spirit is there. I, I get nervous about comparing myself to an activist who is doing work on the ground because quite simply we didn't do that, but there is so much to the idea of cultural production as a means for pushing the movement. You know, it is absolutely at a time where we at least need to be talking about this. We at least need to be discussing these ideas in a bigger in a bigger way with more people. Daniel, I want to ask you, in your biography, you talk about your parents, who are, I think, climate scientists, how that informed your way of thinking about the environment and the planet and how that has translated into your priorities as a storyteller. Yeah, so both of my parents have worked in climate science um, for the last 15 years, my mom for my entire life. Even more significant to me was, you know, my first jobs in film were actually working on climate change documentary, part of very much the awareness industry that uh, grew up in, in, in the kind of early 2010s. And there was definitely a point in time where it was very important to spread awareness about climate change. But even, even then, I was, you know, 16 or 17, it was very clear to me that there was a, a giant messaging failure where we were talking about raising awareness for climate change, but there was never any solution being proposed. There was never any action being proposed. It was essentially write your congressperson as long as you agree that this exists, it'll just work itself out. That was a very alienating experience for me because I was kind of perpetually saying, you know, I don't think that that's going to work. We clearly live in a broken political system. We have to be trying to use this awareness to push people in a direction of actual change, not, you know, consuming, you know, in a way that is 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 perhaps slightly more green. Um, and that was not really heard. And I think that one of the reasons was that a lot of that culture that was being created at that point in time was very much corporate finance, was very much following a corporate model of incremental change and incremental social change that has allowed fossil fuel companies to continue to destroy the planet uh, while we very, very gradually try to address this problem. You're listening to our John Horn in conversation with Daniel Goldhaber and Ariella Barrer about their new film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. We'll have more when we're back in just one minute. It's Film Week on L.A. Estate 89.3. Let's get back to John Horn interviewing director Daniel Goldhaber and actor and co-writer Ariella Barrer about their new film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. You are making a movie in a business that I will say has a not great reputation. Um, you can call it, when it comes to climate, a lot of limousine liberals. They'll host a benefit for the rainforest in their backyards and fly off on their private jet to their 8,000-square-foot Deer Valley residence the next day. And I suspect when you're trying to get a movie titled How to Blow Up a Pipeline set up, uh, people with power are going to say, how about the movie How Not to Blow Up a Pipeline? I'm just curious, was it difficult or did you even try to get this finance through regular means? And how did you end up, how did you end up getting it made? We kind of knew that 
somebody would be really passionate about this project. And I think that's been a guiding light for my whole career is I think there's this Hollywood idea that you need to make, if you're going to make a movie, it needs to be something that everybody wants to make. But I've found the opposite to be true, that if you find something that only one or two people want to make, but they want to make it with every bone in their body, you're going to actually have some pretty good collaborators. And that's absolutely what we had on this project. But I think that I feel really vindicated because we were also the only movie to find distribution at the Toronto Film Festival this year. And I think that it says something about the nature of how disconnected the Hollywood independent film model is from actual audiences, that, that there's a lot of movies that are made at film festivals every year that don't necessarily have an audience. But I think that even though this movie is very provocative, I think it's something that a lot of people are interested in. It's a story that a lot of people are interested in hearing and engaging in. Your film is about a group of individuals who are revolutionaries and they break the law. That's, I think, small spoiler, but it's true. As filmmakers, you may be telling a story about revolutionaries, but maybe it's a little more tricky to break the law. What does that mean in terms of permitting, getting access, um, working with explosives, uh, building pipelines? How did that play out? And were you able to adopt any of their strategies or did you have to do it totally by the books? We did it by the books with clever little tactics, <laughs> such as, you know, a code name for the movie to get certain locations and all around if there was anyone that we weren't sure would would let us do what we needed to do to get this movie made we would we would twist the plot a little bit we would say you know it's about a pipeline that that is they're trying to build and some kids try to shut it down and like yeah we omitted information to certain people sometimes which which to be clear is something that virtually every movie does while it is getting made you know i think that what I what I want to really clarify is that in all of the important ways, we did do this movie the right way. This was a union production. This was a very safe set. We did our best to make the movie as responsibly as we could. There are people who could read this book or watch this movie who say, yes, time to do something. I want to get on board. There could be people who say, I'm not yet ready to be a revolutionary, but I want to do something different than what I've done so far. To that latter group, what are your what are your teachable moments? What would you say people need to think about in terms of trying to be better stewards of the planet if they're not going to go so far as the film and the book suggest they need to? I would say we we don't even particularly argue that they need to do this tomorrow. People can only sacrifice to whatever extent people can sacrifice. You know, people have different things on the line and and there are absolutely other ways to engage. I wouldn't put so much uh, emphasis on personal responsibility, but also there are groups and activist organizations that are doing extremely legitimate, beautiful work right now. And I think part of the importance of this movie is getting people to come together in a physical space to discuss these ideas, even if they don't completely agree with it, what is their way forward? What can we do? Because it's ultimately not too late and all of these actions matter. This is part of also what was behind the crafting of the ensemble in the movie, that you have characters who come from a variety of different backgrounds and a variety of different political ideologies. And these characters all happen to be united in their belief that destroying uh, an oil pipeline is an act of self-defense. But it's, it's also about engaging in the climate fight in a way that is 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 active and that is taking on the system itself and i think that the hope coming out of the movie is that there's not some sort of prescription of you know see the movie and go do x but rather i think that the movie hopes to one combat this feeling of climate doomism and i think to ariella's point i think that it's about looking at your life and figuring out, you know, how one can engage in the ecosystem of action on your own terms. That might be joining a community garden. That might be changing one's diet. That might be, you know, quitting your job at an oil company. There are a lot of individual things that can happen, but I think that the thing that needs to be kept 
squarely in mind is that this nevertheless needs to be a systemic overhaul. And we need to stop blaming ourselves individually for something that is a systemic problem and figure out how we can all individually contribute to changing the system. And I think that that is a a really significant shift in what the messaging around climate has been up until this point. I'm curious, in the environmental activists that you spoke with, are any of them optimistic? Are any of them confident that there can be real change? Because I think a lot of people feel there can't be. You talked about that. Do they feel that there's a way around and there's a solution? Yes. I, I'm confident that there's a solution and we can move forward. Um, I think it's an incredibly convenient narrative for everyone who wants this movement dead to say that it can't. There are scientists putting everything they have into solutions. There are activists putting everything they have, putting themselves on the lines um, to make sure that we have a future. And um, I would hate to ever dishonor their work by saying it's too late because it just scientifically is not yet. Daniel? I agree. I think that ultimately uh, this is just a watershed moment and a test for us as a species. And we've been through some of these before. Um, and hopefully we will continue to face them. <laughs> and I think that it's it's ultimately the most challenging problem that we've ever faced. Um, but what I think makes the climate crisis so maddening is that it's a problem that comes with a solution. We know what needs to be done. We just don't know how to get our systems to a place where they're doing it. And I think that that to me is what's inspiring about the ideas of Andreas's book is he's saying, well, look to the past. How did they force systemic change? If what we recognize is necessary is systemic change, then we just need to call for it effectively. The thing that Andreas identifies in his book is a target, a justifiable target which is infrastructure, that the infrastructure is the enemy, that one can attack the machines that are killing us. And that doesn't mean that's the only target. But I think that I have hope that systems of destruction have been overthrown in the past and that with enough cultural and political will, we can do it in the present. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is in limited theatrical release. We remind you, if you miss any of this week's reviews on Film Week, you can hear the entire program at your convenience. Just go to LAist.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us at Film Week, have a great weekend. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.